The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful for the chance to gather here and hear from your word. You've spoken truth to us and have preserved it in your Bible, safe and secure down through the generations, and now it, it comes to us and we hear it in our own language, your very words. Thank you for the opportunity, and now, Lord, will you seize this moment and teach. You take your word and press it into the hearts of your people. If needed, will you convict? If needed, will you comfort? If needed, will you guide and give direction? Whatever it is that each of us needs in this moment, will you do it from your word and build your church? And there are, I'm sure, Lord, some among us who don't know you, maybe who think they do but don't, draw people to you. Open all of our eyes and show us Christ. Show us your call on our lives and draw us to him. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Teach now, we pray. For our good and for your glory, we ask this. Thank you. Amen. From time to time, you hear someone compliment another person or group by saying, he's the salt of the earth. They're good people, real real salt-of-the-earth type folks, something like that. It's a compliment given to anybody who has some sort of a combination of down-to-earth, steady, usually hard-working, fair and honest, Christian or not, doesn't matter, use it for everybody. That's what we mean when we use the phrase salt-of-the-earth. But that's quite a bit different than what Jesus meant when he used it in Matthew chapter 5, the passage that gave rise to our modern expression. In Matthew 5, Jesus is not describing someone's character so as to compliment. He's talking to his disciples, talking to Christians, like he has been all throughout all the Beatitudes that we just saw. So he's, he's talking to Christians about Christians, not complimenting us, but stating our nature so as to clarify our purpose. When Jesus in verse 13 said, you are the salt of the earth, or in the next verse, the light of the world, he was telling us what we are, how God made us to be, and why. What our mission is, given that that's who we are. And so then, this passage this morning, we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 5, it finally makes explicit something that we've actually touched on a bunch as we're moving through all the Beatitudes. Jesus connects what we are to how we are to deploy what we are in the mission of witness. The Beatitudes, so we've just been seeing all of them, it's, it's easy to, to spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves with them, but the Beatitudes are not just for us ourselves to engage with ourselves privately so that we find the good life for ourselves. 
And they aren't actually just, if you move one step further, they aren't just so that then we would be a blessing to others in an earthly sort of way. So that we would, as we embrace the Beatitudes, that we would be a blessing to them such that we would do them good, we would act mercifully towards them, we would make peace with people and make communities of peace so that everybody can, can enjoy a world that is good. It's not just for that either. Ultimately, all of this that we are and that we are becoming, all of this is for us and for others that the others who are around us and are seeing us and are affected by us and are watching who we are and what we are might see God and then become Christians themselves. It's about witness. They might become worshipers of God giving him the glory for all the great things that he has done in and through us. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll come back to it and make just two observations, one about each one of the metaphors, salt and light. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus said of us, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5. Two observations. Here's the first. God has made us his agents, placed here to be and to do the good that slows the world's decay. I know that's long, I'll repeat it a couple times. God has made us his agents to be and to do the good that slows the world's decay. That's why he placed us here, as his agents, that we would be and do the good that slows the world's decay. Jesus says, you, my disciples, all you Christians, you are the salt. Salt, and for that matter, light, the the next analogy. Very, very common material, right? Used in all kinds of different ways, and so it gave rise to all kinds of different sayings, all kinds of different metaphors. And it's always the case with language that you can't take every definition and every usage and apply it in every situation. You've got to figure out which one of the possible is meant now, here. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about salt here? Pretty simple, actually. The by far most common use of salt in the ancient world, not what we might think of, salt as seasoning, adding flavor, but salt as preservative, keeping food from decay, keeping it from rotting. They didn't have refrigerators then, of course, and there wasn't a lot of natural ice in the Mediterranean world, the Middle East. And while there are ways to slow the decay of 
food and meat, by far the most common and the most successful way was to put a bunch of salt on top of it. Salt, it was and is a natural preservative, and without it, things go south really quickly. So Christian, church, you are the salt of the earth. And the grammar there is emphatic. It's plural, y'all, but you and nobody else. You alone. You are the salt that the earth needs. This place goes south very quickly without us. Which expresses Jesus' view, in other words, the correct view of this earth and of all of its people and its systems and its societies. Everything here is fallen in sin and broken and it's not getting better with time. Give it time and it rots. And while there are certain natural ways that that's preserved, God in common grace has, has moved in different ways in different societies to thankfully keep it from being as bad as it possibly could be or from going as bad as quickly as it possibly could be. That's God's common grace, his kindness to us to, to keep things a little bit. We need to be really clear about it. As long as we live on this earth, which is alienated from God, we are in the midst of ungodly unrighteousness. On a spectrum, for sure. There are some people, for instance, speak of, of righteousness, there are some people who, who never even thought about the word righteousness. They just do whatever feels good at any given moment, and they wander back and forth, and so they, they are what you, what you might call thoughtlessly unrighteous. There are other people, really religious people, who think a lot about the word righteousness, who think a lot about God. They have just misunderstood what the truth is, who God actually is, what righteousness actually is. Maybe they've, they've got a book or they've got a perception of God or they've, they've heard from some man and they've defined something and, and they are trying very hard to be righteous, but they are in error and so are uninformed unrighteous, you might say. They're heading off in pursuit in the wrong direction. And then, of course, there are people who love evil and do unrighteousness on purpose because they find sick pleasure in it. There's a spectrum there, right? Accidentally unrighteous, ignorantly unrighteous, deliberately unrighteous. That, that's, that's a wide scope, and we, we need to be clear that there's, not everybody's the same. When we're talking about decay, it's not all the same. There's a spectrum but it's all ungodly unrighteousness and it gets worse given time, not better. And God placed us here, those of us who are his people are here on purpose, made to be preservatives. To be and to do what would preserve this earth? As we live out righteousness that is Christ-centered and Christ-honoring and Christ-focused. In other words, if you're thinking back through the context here, this, this passage obviously comes into context, and if you're thinking back into the context, God placed us here to be and then to live out what the Beatitudes just talked about, Christ-like righteousness. 
as we are that and are present in our various contexts, we're present at work or at school, in our neighborhoods, in our families, we are people then, in our beings, remember this from last week, before we even speak a word, we are people in our beings who embody and live out lives that reject, for instance, pride and self-focus and reject identity-seeking in the things of the earth. We, we reject in our beings lives lived for materialism and pleasure-seeking and nature worship. We reject in our beings experience worship and living for money and prestige and career advancement and entertainment and sensual pleasure and, 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 and. We don't laugh at the joke at work that's putting somebody down. We don't participate in the dishonesty. No. And here, that's not a rant. It's really easy, I think, to hear all that as they are just against everything. They're like, no, 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 and they hate and they're angry. No, 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 no. It's not a rant. And we're not angry. That's actually part of the point. Humble and lowly and at peace and seeking to make peace. We're, we're not angry at all that. We're just not about all of that. We're separated from it. And the world has happily and readily embraced it all. Steps in and is sinking into all of that. It's, it's the tragedy of the world. That's where people are. And in our beings, before we even say anything, and we will, of course, enter into conversations where we will talk about such things, but before we even say anything, in our beings, we are just stepping away from that and, and are rejecting it in a very subtle indictment. You remember this from last week. While at the same time, we are stepping towards and embracing something quite different. We're embracing a humble and lowly and broken and sober-mindedness and, and a seriousness about sin and, and a realization that we are, ourselves are nothing. We love mercy and purity and we, and we seek to make peace. And, and while we are peacemakers, we also know that we aren't, we aren't right and full. We need more of God to come and change us as we embrace all that while saying no to what the world is all about, there's something that, that is different there. And one person living like that in an office changes the atmosphere. Now, I realize something here. I am, I am saying this, and I'm talking about saying no, 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 and embracing something in an office. One person. talking to a room full of people who, that's your experience. You're in an office or you're in a clinic or you're somewhere on a job site and you're the one person. And I'm saying all this a significant step back from the front lines where you live daily. I get that. It is harder for you to do this than it is for me to say it. 
But that's the call. Salt. It's present there. That's the call. Not from me, but from God who made you and placed you. One person in that spot saying no and also yes to other things changes the atmosphere there. Two people would change it even more. Three, if one of them was the boss, significantly different. Changes the team dynamic, changes how you go about things, what the conversations are like, what the conversation at the lunch table is like, and therefore what other people find plausible. You know how this goes. You, people will talk and will throw stuff around, and I think we should do this, I think we should do that. And the one person, even just not even saying anything, just being silent, But he realizes he has not agreed to that yet. Hmm. And the person who herself is wondering, which way should I go, notices somebody doesn't appear to agree. That changes how she took that conversation, what she found plausible, just by your silence. And then if you actually speak up and say, I don't think God made us like that. It isn't actually true that you just love whoever you love, and that's fine. I recognize people do that, but I don't think that's how God made us. That changes the atmosphere there. And maybe the one person in the middle said, hmm, that's a good point. And if there were two of you or three of you there, is that going to change the atmosphere such that you get ostracized and don't get invited back? Yep, perhaps. We already talked about persecution. But that's the call. To be something there that's different. God made us to be and is making us to be salt right there. Now, I imagine that all of this to this point is relatively familiar to many of us here. This isn't the first sermon you've heard about this passage, and so you've kind of, kind of see where this is coming from, and so really the question is, now having been reminded of that, how are you doing at it? How are you at that? Does this characterize you? And the answer is, to some degree, in part, yes, it does, because you're a Christian. It is not a command, it's a statement. It is not, be the salt. It's, you are. And so... Wherever you show up as, you are different there. there. There is some degree, to some degree, this does characterize you. You are different. That's true. But watch something here because we ourselves can be decaying. And that's what Jesus is getting at in the second half of the verse. While technically salt losing or regaining its saltiness is, is chemically not possible, everybody would have got what he meant. They didn't farm salt then and have it 100% pure. They gathered salt from nature, and everybody would know the experience of going to the bin in which you have what you call salt and realizing, man, this salt, there is so much dirt and sand and other stuff in here that's been mixing in and, and brewing for some time. It's just kind of a mess. I can't use this, this is no good. 
and they'd throw it in the garbage. That is, the garbage can of the ancient world was the street. This is supposed to be salt, but it's worthless, and they'd pitch it. That's what Jesus is talking about and alerting us to, warning us about, really. Christian, living like the world, not living out Christ-like righteousness, in some way being corrupted, in some way having the, the preserving power dissipated. And so it just isn't good for anything. That's what he's talking about. Us being corrupted. And that's not supposed to be us, obviously. So Christian, lean into the Beatitudes. Lean into, don't lean away from, don't let yourself become polluted, don't, don't become compromised or tainted or corrupted, but lean into what God has made you to be. That's the clear and obvious point, but it's, it's actually worth just thinking for just a second, how do you do that? How do you lean into or, or fight, away, fight off the, the corrupting power of the world? How do you do that? Not just by superior willpower. Very often we, we hear something like this and, and we maybe even read through the Beatitudes and we see I'm, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this. And so what we almost accidentally do is we say, I'm going to try very hard to do that. And I see there's a call there. Yep, I'm going to refocus and try harder to do that. That's not the way that God changes us. In anything, here included. We don't, we don't fight by superior willpower, but by looking at and embracing superior promises that are themselves part of the Beatitudes, right? Every one of the Beatitudes ended with a promise, with some, some hopeful lure of the good life laid out there at the end, every one of them. So we fight for personal righteousness, we fight for Christ-likeness and for Christian purity and for Christian integrity, not just by doubling down on our efforts and trying harder to say no to the world or, or yes to, to Christ-like virtues, but we fight by setting our hearts and minds on the promises that are ours because we're in Christ. Let me say that again. We fight by setting our hearts and our minds on the promises that are ours because we are in Christ. So lift up your eyes, Christian, and see those promises. You know God. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Forgiveness because of Christ's cross is yours. And what that means is that the floodgates of God's grace have been opened to you, and all of the earth and everything on it is your inheritance and what is coming in the future. You're good. You're an object of mercy. You're at peace with him. You're good. We set our minds on those things. We set our minds on the, the promises that God has made to us. And then you fight like this. 
God, I see that truth and I believe that truth. Would you help my unbelief? Because what's, what's coming at me is that if, if I agree with what everybody's talking about at the lunch table, then I'll have friends and I really need friends. I'm 16 years old and nobody likes me. I really, really, really want to fit in. And I know the way to do that is to agree that love is love. That's how I do that. But God, I see that you say no to that, and I'm supposed to say no to that. Help me to know that your fullness in my heart. Help me to know that you will back me up, that you will befriend me and love me when they don't. I believe that, but help my unbelief. Please. That's how you fight. And if you don't fight like that, you will lose. Do you see that? It is not enough to just know these things and say, yep, the, the truth is that God has me, that God has befriended me, that God loves me because I'm forgiven in Christ, I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. Check, I got that, but I need friends, so I'm going to go with them. Men and women, teenagers, fight. Not by trying harder but by looking to the promises and saying, God, help me to believe them. We are saved by faith and sanctified by faith. The Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to end. In other words, lift up your eyes, see the promises. That's how you stay salty. So you keep the fountain pure by setting your heart on things above on Christ. Okay, but being salt, fighting to stay pure, and that's good, but I need to come into contact with the meat, right? This is, this is about the mission that God has called his church to, his people to. And it requires some action on our part, an outward-looking posture to look around you at how you may be useful to preserve and to bless and to do good to this place. It is, it is super easy to fight for your own heart's purity and then just to keep your head down and go about your business. That's not what he called us to. Lift up your head and look around. And there's a hundred ways that one could act, could not just be, but also to do the good that would preserve this place. There's a hundred ways you could act, but you're not all 100 are for you. God's placed you in a particular place around particular people. That's your spot. Look, look there. Providentially, by God's plan, you are somewhere. Your workplace, your school, your team, your family, they're the ones who need the salt that is you. Individually living Christ-like righteousness there. And as we mentioned last week, what that means is that you're going to smell like something. You're going to smell like the aroma of Christ there, even before you open your mouth. But you will open your mouth because you're going to be actively seeking to befriend people. 
and actively seeking to use whatever you have to do them good and to be merciful to them and to make peace with them from, from a pure heart. You're going to be engaging with people. Personally, being salt in the lives of, in the situations in which you are personally, individually placed. But we also could acknowledge that this can go, what I might say, like one step up in complexity. And historically, it often has. Individual Christians, not, not, not so much local churches, the local church is the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. The local church is for teaching, preaching the truth, and discipling, growing up believers. And then they go out. And so they go out individually, but historically also Christians have gone out and have linked arms. And what I might call like corporate salt have engaged together, looked around and said, what is the good that we can do to preserve this place together? An example, Christians have started historically tons of hospitals. All around the world, tons of hospitals started by Christians. And more recently, particularly in the West, pregnancy resource centers to help those facing unexpected pregnancies. And food pantries started or assisted with. As we mentioned the, the food drive here today, some people are putting that together and organizing that, and how can we help together, not just individually, preserve, meet some of the needs, do some of the good that's needed in this world? Organizations, and then some have also become what you might call more, more socially active. Christians led the abolitionist movement in this country. Christians, you realize, Christians led the abolitionist movement. Which, of course, was instrumental in the elimination of American slavery. And then today, Christians can and do get involved in social issues like human trafficking and immigration and homelessness. And in our church in particular, some individuals have gotten involved in, in some help to those facing domestic abuse and oppression. You've heard of the ministry that they started, Beauty from Ashes. That's not our church that did that, it's individual Christians in our church and from elsewhere who've kind of banded together to look at a need. Some good needs to be done here to help people. So individually, me in the particular spot where I am, and then maybe us together corporately, salt. There's a lot of opportunity there. To do good to the world, not just so that it would be better and more wholesome. And certainly not so that we would gain some sort of accolades, but ultimately so that people will see something. They'll see the good and see where it came from. In particular, they'll see God. And that's what brings us to the next point. So here's the second observation. And as I'm moving there, let me, let me say, 
I, I don't know. I kind of feel something here. I don't know if the lights are low or if, if I'm being boring. <laughs> but, but let me just ask. We've, we've moved a little bit here from the Beatitudes, right? But not completely. And for those of us who enjoyed the Beatitudes, please realize that this is, this is the back end, this is the important application of the Beatitudes. So let me ask you, engage with this, please. This is God's requirement of us. It's what he made us to be and calls us to grow in, just like the Beatitudes. This is, this is all the Beatitudes deployed. Salt, and now light. Engage with this. Let God speak to you here. We are the light that the world needs. We're the light that the world needs so that it might see the need for and the way to God. We are the light that the world needs so that it might see the need for and the way to God. Verse 14, parallel statement to verse 13. Same sort of emphasis, you and you alone. And this is... This is why we, we must engage with this, not, not only because Jesus is speaking, but because if you realize what he's saying, logically you say, if, if we don't engage with this, there is no light and there is no salt. It's us, period. You, you alone are the light, which again tells us how Jesus sees the world, the correct way to see the world. The world is dark, it is not only decaying, it is dark and has no idea what's going on. This is hard for us to get because if, if you're a Christian, you understand some things and you see some things that sometimes we need to kind of like come back around and check like, oh yeah, that's unknown. The world in darkness, does not know God, does not know his ways, does not even know how to find him. And if it sees a problem, where it sees some of the decay, it has no idea why that is happening and has no idea how to solve it. Darkness. And if you connect this to reality, you look at, there is, there is an epidemic of, of teen depression and anxiety right now. Everybody knows that. Ask the world why that is and what to do about it. And then don't do any of that. Because it's wrong. Now, is, is it some way understanding, is there something to gain from that, something to understand from it? Sure, yeah. But the problem is not actually even in view as the world engages with the problem and tries to solve it. 
It has no understanding that the problem is it does not know God. The world does not know God. Teens do not know God. They are not seeing God in their parents, in their friends. He's gone. He's out of it. So they're trying to find a life in the world, and you can't do that. Now, that problem needs more analysis than I just gave it. It does. And it, it's, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. If you know any teenagers, you've seen it. It's a big problem, and it needs a lot more treatment that's a lot more calm than I'm treating it right now. But the point is darkness. Nobody has any idea, and the ship is sinking. The world is lost, does not know God, does not know the way back to him, doesn't know his ways, doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know what, what the problems are and how to solve them. And then Jesus stepped into the world as light and the world said, not you, and rejected the light. And still, that's where we are then, dark. Everything, everywhere, everyone, except you. That's the, the emphasis of the verse, both the salt and, and the light. The point is, all of that except you. Christ has claimed you, us, Christian, and taken you as his own, come to dwell within us such that the light now lives in each one of us, in each Christian. Each true biblical Christian is light. You're the light of Christ in the world and everything else is dark. Now you're probably roughly familiar with that. So to drop the metaphor, what does he mean by light? Light is about illumination. A lamp mentioned here, an oil lamp, those are the ancient candles. And a city on a hill would reflect light even during the day because they're made of white, they're white buildings. And so anything white, even the day, it's kind of like hard to look at it because it reflects light. And it would reflect light down into the shadows in the valley. And then especially at night with all the little lamps in the town set up on a hill there, it'd stand out. Not like our cities do, not, not quite that bright, but of course the countryside was much darker. So you could not miss a city on a hill for a hundred miles, you could see it in the pitch black night of the ancient world. It's about illumination. We and we only are the illumination of the world. Like we're, we're the flashlight. And what are we showing? Well, what was previously unseen. And for starters, that means we're exposing sin. We're, we're showing the problem and the need. We've touched on this before last week and then even just in talking about the salt. As we live around other people, something comes off of us, not because we're trying to be off-putting, but something comes off of us that reveals that's wrong. That's not it. A subtle, unspoken indictment and then, of course, when we do speak, it explains even more. We're showing something that's wrong. We're showing sin in, in our lives by way of contrast, and we're showing them what is, what is righteous as we say no to and then say yes to. 
we veer in a different direction and embrace what is good and right and we actively seek to live lives of the glory of Christ. That process right there is showing the problem, showing sin and, and showing the alternative, showing what righteousness looks like. And all of that is summarized in verse 16 by the phrase, your good works. Doing good to those around us to help them by showing them what's wrong and showing them what's right and doing for them what is good and right. Preserving this place individually and corporately. All of that is summarized under our good works. And so we're showing good works. But ultimately what that's about is showing Christ. Who made anything in us that is any good at all. It's not Christ with us, it's Christ in us, not us. We are just, if you will, cracked pots. And the light that shines out is Jesus. That's what people need to see. We are unworthy and small and insignificant. And anything good here is only Christ. It's not Christ with us. It's Christ. Anything that comes out of us, any good works, is produced by dependence on Christ. Faithful to his promises. How can I do good? Because I trust him and trust that he has done good to me and that I'm okay, I'm good. So I can give it away. We're shining a spotlight on Christ that ones in darkness may see the good works and how does it end? May glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the same point made in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is surely remembering this when he mentions that in his letter. Seeing this good, these, this, this good that's, that's in us, it's designed to enable them to see the God who is good, who is kind and merciful and powerful. All credit goes to him. As the Beatitudes come into us and change us and come out of us, that we be and do good, the point is, friend, that is all by the grace of God. That is not me, it is him. That's what we're about, our assigned mission, salt and light. In the past, I've called this bread and butter evangelism. What I mean by that phrase is that it's, it's simple, basic, and constant. It's the evangelism that everyday Christians, all of us, we are supposed to major in. We tend to look at certain aspect of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and we see him doing certain things, and we we think that all of that is exactly how we are to be. And while there are certainly things in Paul that, that are a model to us, that we are to emulate, his boldness, his, his, his dependence on God, his clarity about purpose and mission, there, there are a lot of things that we emulate in Paul. But realize this, Paul was a church-planting frontier missionary and an apostle at that. That's different than us. In very big ways, we are not called to do all that Paul was called to do. And in fact, when the Bible explicitly commands us 
about evangelism? Peter, here, when it explicitly talks to the church, to, to all Christians, everyday disciples, it's just like this right here. You, my disciples, are salt. Don't get corrupted yourselves, but get on the meat and work to preserve it. And your light, exposing evil as you show off your good works and point people to the one who actually is responsible for that, to the one who is merciful and kind and good. And then when you get persecuted, and that's a huge point, when you get persecuted, sit with that for just a second. Persecution, or at the very least, if it's not persecution because of Christ, it's at, it's at least the hardship and the suffering that we face in life. Pain. When the pain comes, then the power comes. It's necessary for us and it's necessary for this witness. It's the yuck that makes this all powerful. John Piper talked about once, this concept once, saying, nobody will marvel or even think twice that you worship a God who gave you a nice car and a great house, who got you that good job, that promotion, who made you important, who provided you a spouse, who brought you the long lost child, who gave you those wonderful vacation experiences and, and protected your health and healed you that disease. Nobody will marvel that you make much of that God. They'll marvel and wonder, how is that when all of that leaves? When your child dies, when you get cancer, when you lose your job, when nobody likes you, when the pain comes, that's the only spot where anybody says, how is that that you sorrow and yet rejoice? I know what it is to sorrow, I know, but I don't rejoice when I'm sorrowing. I rejoice after the sorrowing's over. Or when I've denied the sorrow, I pretend it's not there. I put my fingers in my ears and I see no evil and I hear no evil and then I am happy. But you are embracing the sorrow and you're weeping and rejoicing. I do not get where the hope comes from. That's what makes people ask. When the persecution, when the pain. See, all the salt and the light, all of that is it's, it's what we are, it's how we live, how we move through life, waiting for the pain to come. It will, the world is decaying and full of darkness and we live in it. When it comes, that's the spot. Ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. That's the spot where you say, 
I am hard-pressed. I am, I am indeed pained, but I am not broken. I am not sorrowing to destruction. I still rejoice. There's a light in me. You see the cracks. There's a light in me, and it's Jesus, not me, not my abilities, not my hope that it's going to get better. It's not. But Jesus is Christian. This is the call of God on your life, to be salt and light and to wait for the blows well. To wait well for the blows. Yes. <laughs> Preach it, whoever that was. <laughs> they'll look at you and they'll wonder how on earth... How can you endure such criticism from that jerk and not lash out, but be merciful and seek peace? How can you face that terminal disease? How can you bear up under attack? How can you enjoy life without relying on all the medication that we all rely on? And by medication, perhaps drugs, but what I mean is ESPN, <laughs> sex, vacations, another new car, house, four-wheeler, four, fifth wheel, four-wheeler. I need to add the wheels and add the houses if I'm going to enjoy this. How do you not have any of that and you're fine? I don't get that. At all. That makes no sense whatsoever. They wonder why you think so little of yourself and aren't impressed with people at all and yet love them anyway. How you don't suffer from low self-esteem talking so much about your own sin. How you feel urges and say no to them and are still okay. It'll make no sense and it will demand an explanation. Unless, crazy thought, Unless it doesn't demand an explanation because you put a basket over the top of the lamp and somehow tried to hang, hang a gigantic curtain to block the city on a hill so that no light is shining and people just leave you alone in your own personal space to do your own thing by yourself. Whew, lots easier. Disobedient, of course, easier. Rejecting the Beatitudes, of course, but easier. Denying God's purpose and making you new. Easier, though, for sure easier. Christians try to live like that, and we shouldn't. It's a lot harder, but that's what you've been remade for. show what Christ owning a heart looks like. Which sounds a lot like the purpose of the book of Job, right? Where God said, Satan, come here, let me show you what me owning a heart looks like, how it responds to pain. And Job shone like a light and revealed something. Not about himself, but about God.
what you've been remade for, what God's Spirit is strengthening you for, to let your light shine, where it says right there, to let your light shine before others. You don't put a basket on top of a lamp. You also don't flick on the lights in a room and close the door and walk away. You flick on the lights in the room where people are, before others. Now, this is true, and we should, we should face this, and I think a lot about this because I am, I am deeply introverted myself. There are a lot of us here who are introverted. There are some of us here who, you work a solo job, you, you live alone, you, and before others, all I'm trying to say here is before others looks different for different people. Some of us have never met a stranger. Some of us are other. It's going to look different before others, but it means something for every one of us. Not by yourself, but before others. Let your light shine before others. Constantly and consistently, and that's what shows the presence and the power of God to be at work, that he would be illumined, that people would be drawn to him to glorify him, that is to become worshipers of him through Christ. That's God's plan. He saved you in Christ and so then became. He was not your father, but he adopted you in Christ and became your father in heaven. And that's where he sits and reigns over everything. He holds all of this in his hand. Your father and you are his son, his daughter. And what he did in that is that he then made you to be and is making you by his spirit to become more like him, renewing his image in you. And then he's put you in front of people to show what Christ looks like, to show what it looks like to walk with him through the yuck of decay and darkness. And as we walk with him, being and doing what would preserve, what would show off sin and righteousness in Jesus the hope, he is pointed to and he draws people to himself and to his cross, explaining to them, the only way that you can be with me is to die and be born again. The only way is Jesus and his cross and all of your sin on his cross or you pay for it yourself. Trust his cross alone. And I'll make you new too and I'll become your father in heaven. I'll fill you with my spirit. I'll grow you up. I'll sustain you. And I'll carry you home to where all the promises become yours in fullness. That's our life. We are salt and we are light. Meant to be on meat, shining before people, not hidden, not separated, in and amongst, that God would draw some to himself through you. Let me pray.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.